Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. We're going to turn to Matthew's Gospel this morning, Matthew final chapter, chapter 28 of Matthew's Gospel, and what we know to be the Great Commission, specifically verses 16 through 20. We're in a series that we have entitled to be found faithful as God's people. Look behind me. If you're a visitor or if you're a member, uh, the cross is at the very center of our worship as we come to gather. Our eyes are drawn to the cross above it. It is our vision statement as a church to be found faithful as God's people. And for decades, our church has been able to be clear in how we are compellingly drawn to that vision of faithfulness, every generation must be reminded of what unites us and how we measure and define faithfulness in the life of our church. That's the very purpose of this five-week message series to be found faithful as God's people. I just remind you of where we've been. I remind you that to, what does it look like uh, to be found faithful? Well, God's word is our authority. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Prayer is our priority. Last time we were in the series, worship is our response. And this week we want to talk about discipleship as our focus. Discipleship church is our focus. Why is it our focus? It is our focus because Jesus has given us this uh, marching order. He has given us this commission. What people really value and oftentimes what people have experienced in life can be galvanized in some of the final words that they, they give. I, some of the famous examples of this, I think of Leonardo da Vinci, the famous painter of the Mona Lisa. At his deathbed, he uttered these words, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, novelist, inventor of Sherlock Holmes, he turned to his wife, he clutched his chest, and his last words to her were, you are wonderful. It is said that Winston Churchill, in his final breath, looked around and said, I'm bored with it all. The musician Bob Marley looked around those that were around him, and his final words were, money can't buy life. There is something that we say when life comes to that moment and, and we have sentences before us, words before us, not always, but oftentimes it can galvanize what we value and what we've experienced. And here we have Jesus and the final words that are recorded by Matthew in his gospel that in conjunction with Acts 1-8 give us the very final words of Jesus that will be our God not only this week but next week. Jesus before he ascends to the right-hand throne of the Father after his resurrection. In that unique period of time between his resurrection and his ascension, he tells the disciples their marching orders, and we, as followers of Christ, we, we heed, and I pray we hear these words. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, you then go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you are familiar with the Word of God, if you've been in worship services for 
your life. You might have heard this passage preached on or taught on in a variety of settings. It's one of the more familiar passages of Scripture. We know it to be the Great Commission. Much of what we do is found in the very marching orders of Jesus. So it's easy for us to miss some of these small details that I think help us understand at least the, the spirit of the original recipients of this. Notice, notice in your copy of God's Word the description of those first disciples that heard the Great Commission. Verse 16, what is their number? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. You're walking through the Bible, one of the things that you're going to find real quickly is, is 11 is a number of glaring imperfection. 12 is a number of completion and perfection. All throughout the Bible, you have 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 spies that are sent into Canaan. You have Solomon who appoints 12 administrators over the kingdom. You have 12 original disciples. Even where we're headed to, a preview of coming attractions in the New Jerusalem, we will have 12 sides of the foundation of the walls of our eternal habitation here. So 12 is a number of completion. 12 is a number of perfection. And Jesus comes not to the original 12, nor does he wait. And all he has to do is wait just a few weeks. By that time, Judas will be replaced by those 11 disciples, and then there would be 12. Jesus does not wait. He comes to the eleven. He comes to them in the midst of their imperfection, and he comes to them in the, in the midst of where they are. He doesn't wait for a more convenient time. He doesn't wait till they've all recovered from the betrayal of Judas. More than that, look at the emotional state of those disciples. It's not just 11 of them, but verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Have you ever noticed that? that? That here these disciples are seeing Jesus, and they're seeing him after his crucifixion, and he's walking in their midst. And of course, that leads them to adoration, but it's not just adoration. There are some that have apprehension. It's not just doxology that the original disciples are giving to Jesus their worship, but they also have a bit of worry. They have a bit of doubt. Now, some scholars want to untie this knot by, by saying this is not the disciples that are doubting, but there's got to be a, a group of onlookers, a crowd that is gathered, and they're sort of peering over the shoulders of the disciples. And it's not the disciples, but it's the crowd. But I don't see that in this passage. It's the 11 disciples that the spotlight is shining upon, starting in verse 16. So it seems to me that there's something very true about the description of the disciples because it rings true for all of us that are here in the sanctuary. There are times where our adoration is accompanied by apprehension. There is times where our doxology and worship of Him is surrounded by doubt and worry. To be a faithful follower of Jesus does not mean that you are perfectly following him. They weren't. You won't. And Jesus does not wait. He doesn't wait till they have all of their questions answered. He doesn't wait till they're in the perfect emotional state where they've, they've gotten over the betrayal of Judas and the crucifixion of Jesus. He doesn't wait. You can imagine one of the disciples saying, hold on, give us some time. You've only been with us for three years. Stay a little bit longer. Teach us a little bit more. Help us to be able to cross our T's and dot our I's and have everything figured out. Then we'll be ready to serve you. Mm -mm. Jesus comes to them. Look at verse 18. 
It's easy to miss it. In the midst of their doubt, in the midst of the disciples sort of stepping back, Jesus leans into them. And this can be true for you and me. We as disciples of Jesus can take one step back and almost simultaneously take two, or take one step forward and almost simultaneously take two steps back. And Jesus meets them in their doubt. He meets them in their apprehension and he says, I've got a job for you. I've got a mission for you. All authority has been granted to me in heaven and on earth, and that authority has been given to me as the resurrected Jesus. And so now I'm giving you marching orders of what you are called to do. And Jesus issues this authoritative call, not because the disciples have their act together, not because the disciples are perfect and obedient and have, are worshiping him purely. No, they're a mixed bag just like you are and just like I am, just like we are. And Jesus still comes to them and gives them marching orders to follow. And the question is, is what were those and how do we do it? What, what is a disciple? Now, notice in this passage here, Jesus gives one command, make disciples. Everything else is subordinate to it. In the original language of the New Testament, make disciples is the command, it's the emphasis. It's almost like make disciples while you're going. Make disciples by teaching, by baptizing. So this isn't really four commands, go, baptize, teach, make disciples. There's one command, make disciples, and this is how you're going to do it. But notice in this passage, you're going to look and you're not going to find a, a, a footnote right there to tell you exactly what a disciple is. What is a disciple? If we're called to go make disciples, it does beg the question, what is a disciple? It's not a minor theme in the New Testament. You know that word disciple, you're going to find 269 times in the New Testament. 269 times that word disciple comes. Just to give you some comparison, the word Christian, you know how many times you're going to find that in the New Testament? It's an important word, right? You're only going to find that three times. So Dallas Willard, uh, the late Dallas Willard, who wrote a book called The Great Omission, he's got a line in it that has stuck with me that the New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is not a minor theme in the Bible. It is the very calling that Jesus has placed upon our life. What is a disciple? Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and Jesus calling the crowd to him with his original disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The simplest description and definition of a disciple is a follower of Jesus. In the fullest sense of that word, what Jesus is calling you and me, what he's calling us to do is to follow him. To follow him, we have to know things about him, no doubt. To follow him, we must trust him, no doubt. But what he wants most from us is proximity to him, to us. He wants us not to follow him from a distance, but up close. Because the goal of following him is not that we just have intellectual information about who Jesus was and when he lived and what he thought. But no, the goal of discipleship, the goal of you following Jesus is this. So that you will eventually talk like him and you will think like him and you will walk like him. He wants you to walk his way. He wants you to talk his way. This is the ultimate goal of discipleship is that we look less like ourselves and more like Jesus. 
And he is so invested that he sent the Spirit of God to dwell in us because he knows that renovation cannot be done by us alone. We need God in us to transform us. Now, the first invitation to follow him has to be the invitation that you receive to trust him as your Savior. You have to believe he is who he says he is. You have to believe that the Bible is true about who you are. And the story of the Bible is that God created Adam and Eve and he created everything and it was good, but sin entered into the garden. And the sin of Adam and Eve is not just something in the past tense that we read about, but it is something that plagues every one of us that is in the sanctuary. We choose to fall short of God's standards. We choose to not live into the joyous life that God has for us. And that's by our nature and that's by our choice. And that choice and that nature, it separates us from a holy God. Do you remember that harrowing part of Genesis where Adam and Eve were walking with God and they're talking to God and they're with God. And then we have after the fall that they have to leave the garden angels are there to guard the gates. They can't be in the presence of God because sin separates them. And that's true for you and that's true for me. And the the good news of the gospel is, is that God loves each and every one of us so much that he doesn't just leave us far from him in our sin as he's a perfect holy God, but he sends one who will be a bridge. He sends his own son, not an angel, He doesn't outsource this rescue. He sends sends his own son to live a life that we could not live, a perfect life, and to die a death that we deserve to die, a death for our sins. And every sin of every person is laid upon him. So your doubt, Jesus is known because it came upon him upon the cross. Disbelief, you know, Jesus knows because it was laid upon him upon the cross. You know what it is for your faith to falter? Do you know what it is to to be plagued by a sin that so easily entangles you? Jesus has absorbed it all upon the cross. And when he died upon the cross, the end of the story is not just a good Friday, but it is the power of the gospel that God raised his son back to life on Sunday. And in the resurrection of Jesus, guess what, my friends? Jesus has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He has defeated hell and the grave itself, and he desires, this is the amazing invitation about this, is this person who did all of this wants you. He wants a relationship with you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've thought, he comes to you and he calls you trust him and to follow him. So you must trust that he is who he says he is, that he is the Savior who's come to seek and to save the lost. You must turn from your sin and trust in him as the sole source of your salvation. And you, you come to him saying, God, rescue me from myself. Rescue me from my decisions. Rescue me from the ways that I displease you. And I turn wholeheartedly to your son and I give myself to him. Have you, have you responded to his invitation to trust him as your Savior. 
Now, no, that's not just an intellectual decision. Jesus isn't calling us just to check off the boxes so that one day we'll go to heaven. Okay, Jesus is that person. He's that person. I check, check, check. I don't want to follow him here, but I I sure want what he's promising in eternity. I don't want anything to do with him here on earth. But if, if he's going to promise forgiveness of a sin in the future, that's what I want. We don't have that option. His call to us isn't a call just to our head, but it is a call to our heart. He wants all of us. And so the call to follow him isn't a call just to know things about him. But it is to trust him. Trust him enough that you give your all to him. I love the way C.S. Lewis, in mere Christianity, he comes to this very theme, the theme of Jesus wanting our whole life. And he says, give me all of you. This is Jesus talking to every one of us. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you. All of you, no half measures will do. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Jesus has one goal for each and every one of us and that is to completely renovate each and every one of our lives. To completely transform us to where we are wholehearted followers of him. Every day we, we face the temptation of whether we're just going to be a fan of Jesus or we're going to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, there are a lot of things about being a fan that are fun. Every week I get to watch a fifth grader play on Monday or Tuesday night, my own son, play football. I get to watch a, a freshman and a junior. They get to play on Friday nights. This last week was Thursday. Some of you maybe went to uh, the, the Georgia Sanford game. Some of you maybe, I don't know how many of you went to Texas to watch Alabama yesterday. I don't know how many of you uh, went to Auburn last night. But you know what it is. You know what it is to go to a UAB game. You know what it is to go and watch your sons or your grandsons. And you sit in the stands and you watch from a distance. You know things about the players. Maybe you've got a program right there. Well, number 12, that's so-and-so. Number 57, that's so-and-so. You know what a fan, I, I've been a fan of my boys watching them for years. I've never, I've never come back from the bleachers and had a bruise on my thigh because I wasn't in the game. As a fan, I'm not expecting that I'm going to really sweat out there. I'm not going to get hit out there. I'm not going to give myself. And so often we treat Jesus as if we just want to be fans of his. To watch other people follow him from a distance. And we know information about those that are following him. But we don't want to be on the field. We want, we want the cozy, comfortable distance away from him. And Jesus is calling us to move from fandom to truly follow him. He's calling us from not just knowing about him far away, but to be on the field engaged in what he is calling us to do, to be, to become. That's what he wants for all of us that are here. It's not enough for us just to be in the stands. He's calling us to the field, not as fans, but as fully devoted followers. And this is the purpose of the church. One way to think about the very purpose and focus of the church is to help us grow from being fans of Jesus to followers of Jesus. How do we make disciples? Well, the very heartbeat of everything we do from the worship here 
age group ministries, wonderful preschool ministries we have, and children's ministries we have, and student ministries here, college, the life groups that we have, the very facilities that we have, what we do invest in. When you boil it down, it has at its heart one goal, or it is not worth our time, and that goal is that we, by engaging as a church, are ultimately looking more like Him and talking more like Him and walking more like Him. The focus is discipleship because anything less is not what He has left for us to do. Our calling is to make disciples. So the role of the church is to encourage this pursuit. The role of the church is to equip this pursuit individually and also as families to do that in small groups, to do that collectively as a church, to train in such a way that you individually can grow so that you move from the stands as a fan to the field in active pursuit of Jesus. How can you get into the game? One way to ask that question is how can you grow closer to Jesus? That's his aim. He wants you to grow closer to him. I heard years ago a pastor by the name of Robbie Gallaty, he just used that word closer in such a simplistic and clear way to talk about how we move from the, the, the stands to the field, how we move from knowing about Jesus to actually following him and just follow that acronym that years ago I heard from him, see, communicate with God through prayer. That's why we took a whole sermon to talk about prayer being our priority, because why? John 15, 5, apart from him, how much can we do individually as a church? The answer is nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We're tempted to not believe that, but I just want to remind us that we're we're not going to look more like Jesus, we're not going to talk more like Jesus, and we're not going to walk more like Jesus unless we spend time with Jesus. Listening to him. One of the great joys I have as a pastor is to be able to sit down with families, especially husbands and wives. I remember vividly as a young pastor going into a home years ago, and that family, that husband and wife, they'd been married for 73 years. And I came back and I was talking to Danielle. We'd been married for a year, year and a half. And I said, Danielle, it was almost as if they were just one mind. He would say, Honey, what am I trying to say? And she knew exactly what he was trying to say. They could complete each other's thoughts. They knew how each other felt. 73 years, I did both of their funerals. They died within eight days of one another. It was almost as if all of that time with each other had meshed them, as the Bible says, as one flesh. And the more that we talk to Jesus, the more we begin to think like Jesus and the more we talk to Jesus in prayer, the more we begin to walk like Jesus. And this couple, you, you know the truth of this, a couple that has been married for 70 years, you can look at them and they look like one another because they were so close to each other. This is how we grow in Christ-likeness. We, we communicate with God through prayer. We learn, L, to understand and apply God's words to our life. Notice verse 20 of the Great Commission. We, we hear, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, for those original disciples, they, they have the very words of Jesus that they, they are passing down. 
It becomes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. They've got the Old Testament, much of it that they're, they're memorized and they're internalizing as faithful Jews. We as Christians, we've got Genesis through Revelation, inspired by God to do what? To teach us what to be and what to do. So we, as followers of Jesus, were transformed by trusting the Word of God, cherishing the Word of God. It becomes our ultimate authority. You remember a couple weeks ago, the very foundation of this theological vision is God's Word is our authority. And so a follower of Jesus trusts the Bible, meditates upon the Bible, wants to not only hear the Word of God, but to heed the Word of God, which leads us to the O of this acronym of CLOSER, C-L-O, obey God's command. James chapter 1, verse 22, the very half-brother of Jesus says, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. So we can read the word but not apply the word. We can hear the word but keep it far away from us. It's like we do this to the Bible. We have our hands held out and say, I I want to have a a connection to the Bible. I want to be familiar with the Bible, but I don't want it to get here to our hearts. And ultimately, from our hearts to our hands, but the Word of God, it penetrates in such a way that followers of Jesus are not settled with just listening to the Word of God and reading the Word of God, but it connects to our hearts and it leads us to obey His commands. It's not enough. Your your greatest intention is to have physical transformation. You go to a physical trainer, you make New Year's resolutions, you pay her, you pay him money, and and they they give you a nutrition plan. Here's your menu for the next week. Here's the menu for the next year. Here's the menu for the next few months. You say, thank you. And then they say, hey, you want to have physical transformation? Here's the cardio routine that I want you to have. And then you say, thank you. And then they give you the weight workout, your strength training that you're going to do. And you say, thank you. And then you go home and, and you read up on all that they've given you. You begin to watch videos of other people doing squats, and you begin to watch people doing burpees, and you begin to do all of this research on all the the calories and the macronutrients that are in the food plan, but eventually for transformation to happen, you've got to take what is on the page and put it into action. And it's not enough for us just to be experts in the Word of God in a theoretical, hypothetical way. It is always intended to lead us into obedience, lead us to where it transforms how we parent and how we're husbands and wives and how we're students and how we're employers and employees. We are called to obey God's command. We're called to communicate with God through prayer, to learn to understand and apply God's Word, S, This acronym of CLOSER, we are to store God's Word in our heart. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You remember Jesus? He is still wet behind the ears from his baptism when the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness and he goes goes toe-to-toe with the deceiver Satan himself three times. Satan tries to trip up Jesus, and three times Jesus comes back with the word of God. This is our sword. This is the offensive weapon as we engage with the enemy himself, as we grow, so we store the word of God. That's why I love things like Bible buddies in our church and Bible drills in our church. One way that our children are hearing the Word of God and they're, they're holding on to the Word of God and learning the Word of God. But I just want to remind you, if you worship with us week in and week out, 
and we sing the great hymns of the faith. We sing the great songs of the, of the modern expressions of worship. We do that week in and week out, week in and week out. You know what you're doing? You're digging a well. You're digging this deep well of the Word of God. So when you come to those times of difficulty and challenge, you come to those times where you're fearful about the future. You come to the times where you have doubt and uncertainty about where he is leading you. There is a deep well of the word of God that is so often planted in us through the songs that we sing. And God brings to us his word as an offensive weapon to guard our hearts. You'll meet people. I, I get the privilege to meet and talk and each and every week, people going through horrific challenges, and they say to me, you know what they say? They say, God has granted me an absolute peace that passes understanding. I can't explain it. And I say, well, I know, I know what you're talking about because the Spirit of God is in you. And the Spirit of God promises to guard our hearts, and he does that through the Word of God stored deep in us. Closer, communicate, L, learn, O, obey, S, store, E, evangelize, just simply tell others about Jesus. What we love and what we're passionate about, we just have to tell others about. This is true. What has captivated our hearts and what, is, what, what, what we give ourselves to, it just overflows you, you can know if someone's a diehard fan of fill in the blank because if you spend any time with them, you're eventually going to see how that fandom affects their life. The decisions that they make, how they spend their time and how they spend their money, the conversations that they have, the interests that they have. When we are followers of a team, followers of a musician, it shows because that becomes a priority when we're followers of Christ. You spend enough time, you'll hear about Jesus. You'll see him working in our lives. Evangelism is, is nothing more. I love the way the, the great missionary, D.T. Niles, said that, that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where he or she found bread. That's what we're doing. It's just the one that has captivated our hearts and souls. We, we want to share about and tell others about in our home over time and work in our neighborhood. So walk through this, communicate, learn, obey, store, evangelize. And as you come to the end, just renew yourself spiritually every day. It's just a fact that followers of Jesus do not grow by spiritual leftovers. Praise God that that mission trip 20 years ago made a deep impact upon your life. It's not enough for you to feast on today. Praise God that you grew up in a godly household decades ago, but that heritage is not enough to feed you in the challenges of today as you're called to follow him. Praise God for a, a wonderful foundation. Praise God for, for times in your life, maybe years ago, that, that he connected with you in a powerful way in worship or connected with you in a powerful small group, but we need him today. So we need fresh food, fresh manna for the journey that we have today. And that's why he calls us in his word, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that's not just an admonition, that is encouragement. Every day is a fresh opportunity to follow Jesus. And some of you just need to hear that. 
We can become so overwhelmed by our past that it paralyzes us. We can become so overwhelmed by our mistakes. But hear me, no matter what you have thought, as a follower of him, you can come and he is still calling you to follow him today. No matter where you've been, he is still extending a hand calling you to follow him today. No matter what you've seen, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've done that has disappointed maybe you, others, and even God himself, he is still inviting you today. It's a fresh invitation. No matter our sin, no matter our past, no matter our mistakes, to hear his call, follow me. So the question is this. Are you sitting in the stands as a fan? Watching others on the field, or are you on the field following him? Today, he's inviting you.